You're listening to On Mission with Dr. Matt Davis, a podcast designed to explore the personal mission of everyday leaders. Hear from men and women who are making a difference in their corner of the world and discover what keeps them on mission. Welcome to On Mission with Dr. Matt Davis. I'm Jonathan Sheely. In today's episode, we are joined by David Haytag, president of Edgerton Gear here in Wisconsin. It's a very interesting conversation because this is a little bit uh, different dynamic for us as a university. Dr. Haytag is someone that is very much dedicated to the trades and runs a business here in Wisconsin that's been very successful. But his philosophy and work ethic gives us a tremendous amount to learn from and to digest. I have just found myself fascinated by his dedication to the work ethic and to improving and investing in a next generation. And that's really so key right now. We see the workplace demands, the workforce Mm -hmm. shortage, the labor shortages everyone talks about. And here he has some solutions to that. And I think it's a very interesting contrast for us as our focus is higher education, but we are still very much trying to perfect our craft. Mm -hmm. And that's really what the craftsman's code is all about. And so it's a different twist. Dave was here for a leadership breakfast and challenged our students and local business owners how they can create the same kind of culture that not only attracts the right kind of workers, but retains them for the long term. Well, and the the fascinating part for me was that he was, what he was saying is his process for mentoring is a is an answer to what do we do with people who don't think that they can do education. And his retort is they actually can, because he was telling the stories of the guys who, after they've been mentored a little bit and some purpose has been added into their life, they go back to school and they actually succeed in the academic sphere. So many times the struggles that an individual will have academically are really a combination of developmental, they're just not the right time in life, And also that sense of purpose. And once you have tied into the purpose that God put you on this planet for, there's just a great joy and an unlocking and unleashing of the pent-up potential that's there. And he tells fascinating stories and really has a lot to offer. So this is going to be a great episode. Let's get to it. Joining us today is Dr. David Haytag, president of Edgerton Gear in Edgerton, Wisconsin. Dave and his wife, Tracy, live in Edgerton and have three grown sons. Edgerton Gear is a family business that Dave has been involved in since he was five. As president of Edgerton Gear, Dave has been crucial in creating a culture of mentorship over the last 30 years. In 2020, he published the book, Good Work, How Blue Collar Business Can Change Lives, Communities, and the World. At home, Dave enjoys gardening, deer hunting, and reading. His favorite meal is grilled venison backstrap with homemade pesto, grilled vegetables, grilled sourdough toast, and topped off with a dessert of raspberry pie a la mode. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me here. Thank you very much. Man, that's a very specific favorite meal. I think, uh, you know, if you're ever on death row and they say, what do you want for your last meal? You're going to know exactly what you want to order. You asked. Oh my goodness. Well, you had that dialed in. And I'm sure that if it's grilled venison, it's going to be a deer you took yourself uh, out on the the range, so to speak. And you like to do bow hunting, is that right? Very, yeah, correct. So what is it about bow hunting that you enjoy over, you know, taking a deer with a with a rifle or a shotgun? Well, a lot of reasons. One, it's just the peacefulness of the woods at the time, because mm-hmm. you can get out, I go out in October, um, but there's not guns blasting off. Yeah. And the deer are completely clueless that you're there and you can get really close. And, uh, and, and you're not nearly as successful because you might have to be out there for quite a few times. And I go out there and it's just a chance to get away. I need to recharge by being in the woods and being, being alone. Mm. So getting a deer more often than not is, is not that important. Yeah. Are you always successful though? I mean, you said it takes longer. It's harder, I guess. Yeah. I I try to put two or three deer in the freezer every year before, before November to make sure that the freezers are full. Now, are you a big trophy guy or is it more about the meat? More about the meat. Yeah. Um, trophies, I've, as I've gotten older, we, we need to thin the herd where we're at. Yeah. So I, the only deer I won't shoot are, are fawns. 
Um, right. But I I just light up when uh, with venison. I don't think a lot of people understand that, right? Like that there's a there's a a herd, so to speak, in the, in the state. And yeah. if we didn't have the hunters doing this be a lot more dangerous actually for vehicles and exactly especially in the southern part of the state at least mm -hmm. in the northern part of the state they have wolves bears actually we have a few bears down here too but without hunters the deer herd just explodes and then it reaches a tipping point or well, then it, it gets wiped out with disease and so on so wow. hunters play a pretty important role to to manage it and keep the, the herd healthy and you're doing your part i'm trying hard <laughs> <laughs> well, we so appreciated your time this morning on campus for leadership breakfast in the community. And we're excited about this conversation. And to kick it off, do you have a mission statement for life? You know, that's a great question because I've, I've thought a lot. I've been a believer for since I was 19. And uh, essentially, a lot of brokenness in my life, um, just a lot of brokenness in the world. And so when, when God got a hold of me, the thing that really hit home for me was the idea of reconciliation and how do you how do you fix all the brokenness in, in the world and just in my own life so i i go back to second corinthians 5 18 where it talks about god has given us the ministry of reconciliation well how what's that look like in a, in a business sense what's that look like in my family and so the, the journey i've been on for 30 years is how does a little gear shop matter how does reconciliation happen there and some of the little anecdotes that he's shown me is we do a lot of breakdown work. You know, machines don't last forever. The right. parts wear out. Mm. So by us making gears, we're helping reconcile the machine back to its original function. And then we have people. We have a lot of brokenness in our, in our employees and all of us. So then it's how do we help everybody in our company, and it's including ourselves, be reconciled to God's original purpose. So I think that whole sense for me, the, the, the mission statement is how can the totality of my life be used from my machining background to a family background to be used as a servant to help and reconcile whatever way God wants to use me to himself. I think this could be a really powerful metaphor for the Christian walk, but help me understand just from a practical matter, okay, what is the significance of a gear? Your, your whole company mm -hmm. is devoted to making a part that isn't ever really the centerpiece, mm -mm. the showpiece, mm -mm. <laughs> unless you have one of those watches that doesn't have a face and you can kind of <laughs> see all the gears. But, but gears, what, yeah. what is the deal with gears? Well, it is a good metaphor for, I think, the kingdom of God. It's mm. it's behind the scenes. How is God working? Well, gears keep equipment running that make literally everything. And I, I often say I can walk down any grocery store aisle in the world, and I can point out to products that our gears were instrumental in making because mm. we're, in, we're in the packaging industry and the bottling, canning, uh, paper manufacturing, just on and on and on. So gears are, are a really critical unseen component for modern civilization to even exist. Right. And yet, when it's not right, the machine is useless, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's an internal component, out of sight, out of mind most of the yeah. time. Yeah. And yet, if it's off, yeah. just a little bit, yeah. right, yeah. then the machine just doesn't work yep. properly or maybe at all. Exactly. Right. So so we are the, as, as gear makers... We are the unsung, unsung heroes <laughs> of modern civilization. <laughs> you need a comic book or something like <laughs> Gear Man, right. you know? <laughs> it's true. It's and you know, weird. and for the longest time, I didn't understand that. I took it for granted. I grew up working in the shop and I thought, okay, great. I work in a gear shop. And my own sons would actually even be a little bit embarrassed that we were in a gear shop. That we just own a family machine shop. Hmm. And because I think there's this mentality in our society and in the church that blue collar work and making gears is just manual labor it's dirty dark dangerous and all that but as i've gotten older and my kids now really embrace it too we're doing really important work yeah you know and we and we take a lot we take that very seriously and and if if modern civilization is to hum along we need to make really good gears right well you know they're talking about moving away from fossil fuels and moving away moving to more sustainable energy like away from coal plants and we're going to go from gas powered cars to Battery powered mm -hmm. cars, and guess what they have in battery powered cars? Gears. Gears. <laughs> so, you <laughs> know, I don't think you're going anywhere no. anytime soon, right? No, no matter what no. happens with the energy grid, 
gears are here to stay. Exactly. And, and it's even to the point where we're kind of recession proof because you were always going to need food and yep. transportation, toilet paper, mm -hmm. all of those things. And, yeah. and so we're, we're, a, we're very, very essential business in, in the global economy. We've talked about sometimes white collar jobs versus blue collar jobs. Are you going to go to college or are you going to go into the trades? As mm -hmm. if these choices are mutually exclusive or that one's better than another, you know, that kind mm -hmm. of a thing. Can you give me an idea why manufacturing in particular is a, actually a great career mm -hmm. to pursue? You know, we hear guys mm -hmm. like Mike Rowe, and I, I mm -hmm. bet you probably have posters of Mike Rowe in your I garage. Do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I love not just the dirty yeah. jobs, you know, type yeah. of thing, yeah. uh, the show, but, you know, he's gotten more vocal yeah. about promoting this aspect as well. So help me understand why manufacturing is actually a great career for a young person to pursue intentionally and not just a, well, if nothing else works yep. out, I can yep. always go this way. So the, the first aspect of that that we often talk about is how expensive universities are. Mm -hmm. And there's just this general sense that everybody needs to go to a four-year university and graduate with a tremendous amount of debt. Oh, and yeah. Mike Rowe talks about that a lot. My, my, and to get into manufacturing and the skilled trades, you know, you, in our shop, you start earning money right out of the gate as an apprentice. So by the time you finish your four-year apprenticeship, you have no debt. You're making very good money, and you already got a, a, a pretty they, good start. They pay you to learn the job. Exactly. Nice. Yeah. So that's just from that standpoint alone, it's from a career standpoint, a financial standpoint, it's very lucrative. I mean, there's in the manufacturing trades, technicians, skilled journeymen, they're making close to six figures. Is there a sense, though, that they've lost some portability uh, being able to take that skill and translate it to maybe another employer or another field? Is it too specialized no. or is there a way for that, no. you know, to when, be? When I got my journeyman card as a, as a general machinist back in 1985, my dad always said, you know, you got to get your journeyman card. I had no idea what to do. So, so I, I, college wasn't even an option at university at the time. So he said, at least get your journeyman card because that's like a, that's like a gold card in your pocket. I'm like, right. yeah, whatever. Well, when I got to California, I ran out of money. I moved out to there when I was 80, in 19, you know, when I was 22 and 85. And if I need to make some money and I'm like, okay, well, it's the one thing I know how to do. I'm a machinist. So I actually walked down the street four blocks away and there was a defense contractor. And I walked in, I said, are you hired? And they said, no, we're not. And I, but who are you? And I said, well, I'm so-and-so and I'm a journeyman machinist from Wisconsin. What? Hold it. They ran upstairs, <laughs> came back down and said, come up here. And I was hired on the spot. Oh, wow. So you learn the, you learn these technical machining skills. Uh, electricians are the same mm -hmm. way. Plumbers, it's universal. I mean, right. the skills that you, you use. It's you not can, easy. It's not. And it takes a long time to learn to be a right. good, to be a good machinist or plumber, electrician, four, five, 10 years. And, and the, the idea that somehow intelligent people go to college and less intelligent people go into the trades is ridiculous. Oh, it absolutely is. Absolutely. Because what we often fail to recognize in our schools, and, it, and it, we talk about a little bit, you know, about 50% of the population are tacit learners. They don't do well sitting in a, in a chair, reading and listening. They need to be working with their hands. Active. Yeah. Active mm -hmm. learners. Yeah. Correct. So if that's true, um, I often say some of our students, they, I, I get, we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, but I, I get the, the, often I call the worst of the worst of high schools. I want those kids that aren't doing well, that are the shop kids that don't often fit in well with Because with your theory is that the reason that they're not behaving and the reason they're not succeeding is just they learn different. They learn very different. And you yeah. say, hey, that's a guy I can actually exactly. build into. So I've gotten a number of students that were D and even F students mm -hmm. who are, <laughs> one, one, one young man in particular, he was a D student all the way through school. And, we, and I have actually multiple stories like this, but D student, they take our course where all of a sudden they discover a sense of purpose. And that's the other thing about going into manufacturing the trades. What's your deeper sense of purpose? What's your calling? What did, what did God really wire you to do? And so with some of these young people, we bring them in, they go through our course, Craftsman with Character, they get mentored, they discover their purpose. And in one semester, they turn from being a D student to an A student. And one of the, one of the young guys, we put him in a tech school and he got, and numerous guys, they got straight A's. They've never got A's in their life, but all of a sudden they're connecting <laughs> their purpose and they're like, hold it. And the, and the teachers are looking at him like, what happened? And mm. the kids are going, well, I, I know what I'm meant for. I know the what I'm meant to do. Yeah. On. Yeah. I have a really good friend who's a tool and die maker. He's got 
you know, his journeyman license in tool yeah. and die works for Evinrude here. Yeah. It's a huge plant yeah. in Wisconsin. And he, he would say, I hated school. Mm -hmm. Me but too. when I talked to him and I, I talked to him because it's fascinating to me yeah. because it's a totally different world. And I love to learn about different worlds. Yeah. It's almost like science fiction sometimes when he's describing <laughs> how he's programming this CNC machine yep. to cut out these parts three-dimensionally. And I'm thinking, this guy is no dummy. And he's saying, I hated school. And I think it's probably got more to do with what you're talking about, yeah. that, that there was a disposition and maybe a learning style. Because yeah. obviously you had to learn how to do all of that work. You had a video this morning you showed, and one of your guys, your younger guys, said, you know, I didn't do very well in math, but I do algebra every day now. I'm sure he does more algebra every day than yeah. I do. <laughs> yeah, I know he does. <laughs> Even though I got an A in algebra, you know, I don't use it in my job, but here he yeah. is, and he says, I didn't know it's algebra, yeah. but I'm yeah. doing it every day, yeah. you know? That's yeah. incredible. Isn't that, isn't that yeah. amazing how God just wired people in it? I think when we talk yeah. about diversity— that's what we really should be focused on is how people have a diversity of exactly. giftings and helping people find purpose yep. in what they exactly. do. Yeah, exactly. You talked about a ministry of reconciliation, and reconciliation assumes that there are multiple people mm -hmm. involved in, in relationship. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was fascinating in, in your book, you talk about this, and in your, in your talk this morning, you talked about one of the purposes we find in our trades and in work isn't really to do with the gears we're sending out the door, but in the relationships that we're building intergenerationally and otherwise in the workforce. And you talked yeah. about the importance of those intergenerational yep. relationships. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So that's the way God wired us for, as I often say, for, for a sense of purpose. You know, whether it's an individual purpose or our collective purpose, how do we fit into the world? And the other part that we're wired for is to be in healthy relationships and community. And when, when we dehumanize people in the workplace and look at, that, at them simply as a worker without understanding the, the, their, their, their connectedness, our need for connectedness to other people, we, we really um, we strip them of, of their dignity. And so by, by putting them in a multi-generational environment, what we call a, a mentoring culture, it allows the older generation to, to pass on that sense of legacy and that younger generation to really get blessed, right? Because it, when we're young, we're trying to figure out where do we fit, who are we, why, why am I even here? And, and the older person's job, and I'm a grandfather now, my job is to bless that younger generation that say, you, you are here, you are not an accident, and I see you. We talked about in our small group this morning, we're studying the Proverbs, and uh, we were talking about the fact that there are differences between older generations and younger mm -hmm. generations that walk into the workforce. And there sometimes are tensions mm -hmm. because we don't necessarily speak the same language, right. we don't have the same energy or... Uh, approach to, to yeah. things and problems, and that both generations kind of have to understand each other pretty Correct. well. And somebody in my group observed, you know, well, younger people have a lot more ideas. And of course, I'm yeah. the only old person in the small group <laughs> and 12, you know, college age students. And I said, well, that's because I'm old enough to know that 90% of my ideas I used to have were dumb ones, you know? <laughs> and, and so I don't have the dumb yeah. ones anymore. So yeah. I have fewer ones, but they're better quality, you yeah. know? <laughs> And I said, now, guys, isn't, is that true? And they said, yeah, yeah, that's true. I said, you know, when you were a little kid, you thought that there probably was a, such a thing as a flying horse, you know, but now you're older, <laughs> you don't have that idea anymore, right? So you have fewer ideas, right, right. <laughs> but better ones. And I said, you know, what we have to have is an understanding between exactly. the generations, because what happens with those older generations is we get closed off to ingenuity, uh, innovation, Right. And creativity and, right. and really the energy that a younger generation brings in. We need to value that. Exactly. We need to bring exactly. them in, right? Yeah. You talked about mentoring quite a bit. And I thought it was interesting. You used two words that were counterintuitive with that. You you used the word love. Mm. You you talked about and, and you were describing one of your crusty older guys, you know, that was maybe a little intimidating. And, you know, he came around to say, I love it. 
I actually yeah. love it. But I think what he really was saying is I actually want to show love towards these guys. And that maybe looks a little different between men as mm-hmm. platonic mm-hmm. relationships versus women mm-hmm. and different things. But love in a manufacturing context, what yeah. is that all about? <laughs> we are all desperate to give and receive love no matter where. Mm. And so, yeah, in a hardcore blue collar manufacturing environment, (laughs) um, some of the guys don't want anything to do with it. I mean, they're like, hold it. I don't want to sit around and sing Kumbaya and hold hands. Yeah, let's all hug hug it out, you know, (laughs) between shifts. But but so so love looks like respect. And again, what I just said, I see you, I Mm. hear you, I, I recognize you. And I have to say, the more we build that kind of a culture around mutual respect and, and dignity, um, love starts overflowing in ways where it starts softening, you know, these stereotypes that we have about blue collar guys. I, I have numerous examples of of hugging guys at work, guys crying. And like, what? And yeah. And the more that God, I, I, I feel, has gotten the kingdom or the, the kingdom has gotten into our business, the the more I see this, this uh, incredible softening, um, being authentic, being vulnerable, um, because the world teaches to be hard and, and cut off and, yeah. and men in particular, yeah. men have fewer outlets for expressing those yes. kinds of things, vulnerability, yep. sadness, yep. um, camaraderie, you know, yeah. the, we, we often can express joy and enthusiasm right. around sports. Yeah. Uh, usually. Um, and I've seen people talk about how sports can become an avenue for sharing that and opening up, but you used a, a, another term and that was empathy, mm-hmm. being able to see things from and feel things from another person's perspective. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. really a, a mature character yeah. quality as well. Right. But, yeah. but helpful in the workplace. Yeah, and, and it takes, it takes creating that safe environment. That, that we call a mentoring culture that as adults, we can be open and vulnerable. Um, and the kids need to see that. When I, when I teach our course, I'm, I'm teaching other people how to teach it. And I say the number one thing you have to have is in working with, with high school students in this, in this course, you have to be vulnerable yourself. And, and in order for those kids to open up, they need to see who you really are and that you're authentic. They don't need to see you as being the authority with all the answer. They need to see your brokenness. And, and the one term I, I often use is, is being a confessional leader. You know, as leaders, we have to be able to open up and, and confess that we make mistakes, we're not perfect. Don't get defensive when we make mistakes, but, but enter, and just be a human, an honest human being with each other. And that's when the, that dignity and the, the empathy really starts to, to take root. I, I think there's a, a thought with regard to leaders that we have to, always be together, put together, uh, confident, uh, that, that our people will not respect us if we don't, you know, if we open up and are vulnerable, uh, maybe some of the most powerful things I've seen leaders do are express their emotions, Mm -hmm. uh, and, Mm -hmm. and express some vulnerability or be willing to say, you know, I love you. Uh, every time I have an opportunity to stand up in front of our students, whether it's in chapel or any other time, you know, I, I try to find a way to say, I love you. Right. I mean, yeah. it, you might think it goes without saying, I mean, my whole life is dedicated here and I'm not yeah, doing it yeah. for the money or anything. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. doing this because we believe in them and we, we need them and we're counting on them and, and we love them, yeah. but we probably shouldn't let that go unsaid. Right. I mean, we have yep. to express ourselves and, and be open to that. Is that a sign of weakness for a leader mm. to, shows some level of vulnerability and I'm not talking about mm-hmm. crying all the mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. and a mess. I do, I do <laughs> you know cry I mean? quite a bit though. I do. <laughs> yeah. But isn't that a balance, right? <laughs> it, it is. Cause he can't come across as, as just, you know, kind of whiny and wimpy at times, but, yeah. but for the most part, um, the, again, they need to see how human we are. Mm. And, and when, when we're not, it just, it, it just puts up walls. And, and I, and the other thing I'll say, especially in the blue collar world, and maybe it's, it's just everywhere, we're so um, cynical these days and, and we've learned to be hardened and, and guarded. And if we're, as, if, as leaders, if we're not going to be open, vulnerable, honest, and communicate love and appreciation and respect, who else is going to? 
And, that, and that's where I love the whole idea of blue-collar businesses. I really believe that we can change the world because we're dealing with a segment of society that's been so overlooked, so taken for granted, mm -hmm. so beat down. You know, you often hear working from the man, right? And that's why a lot of the blue-collar folks feel. And so they're they're really a receptive a receptive field, so to speak, of sowing seeds of love, compassion, because they they've been so it's they've been so void of that for so long. Yeah. They, Does that make sense? Yeah. They yeah. they take pride in what they're doing, but there's also a connectedness not only to sending out gears that will change the world and yeah, yeah. power the world, but that they're also in this for each other. Yes. Yeah. So you, you told a story that caught my interest because I, I teach business law here on campus and um, we have different concepts in business law that obviously talk about how businesses work. Mm -hmm. And you, you told a story about getting a phone call mm -hmm. and they needed a gear because their entire manufacturing plant was down Correct. because of the the one gear that one had, gear. had failed. And I, yep. I, I don't have a concept of how big the, and complicated this thing was, but maybe you can help me with that part. But they said, we need this gear. How fast can you get mm -hmm. it out to us? Um, we have a very similar case that we study in business law to that. And it was a, a sawmill hmm. that its main shaft broke. And it was an old wa water wheel powered sawmill wow. back in the day, right? Wow. And their main shaft drive broke and they called up a, a repair mill and they said, you know, how quickly can you get us a, a replacement shaft? But they didn't tell them that they didn't have a spare. And so the shop uh -huh. told them, well, we can get it to you in about two weeks. And the whole mill was down for two weeks. And then they called and said, you know, where is it? And they said, well, we had some backup and some problems. And, and so you're going to be down another week. And they said, we... Then they finally revealed, well, we don't have a backup. And it was, of course, standard policy. You had two of these because oh your whole mill is going to yeah. be down if you don't. And so the sawmill sued the repair shop for what's called consequential damages. Oh, my goodness. And they said, we are not only – we're suing you for the lost business that we, we lost for this, this time period that we were down – because you told us two weeks and now we're down another period of time. So mm. uh, the case all turned on whether or not that sawmill could get consequential damages for the promise that was made and then not kept by the repair shop. You know what it came down to? The court said, you cannot because you did not tell them ahead of time what yep. the need was. Yep. Right. Yep. So in your situation, they did tell you that yeah. the plant was down and you made you made some commitments, I suppose. How does how does that commitment process as a leader in a plant like this where you're relying on your team? You, you mentioned yep. you weren't even there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you're just calling them and telling them, guys, you know, yeah. get it done. Um, and they came through for you. How much do you think about those commitments that you're making on behalf of your your team and you know, really the importance and reputationally as well of following through on that. <laughs> so in a, in my book, I wrote a whole chapter on this. <clears throat> okay. Because I don't think we often realize Jesus was a small business from a small business, family business, right? And up until age 30, based on what we know, being a, not just a carpenter, um, the Greek word is tecton, which actually would be more like a craftsman, stone worker, et cetera. They didn't have a lot of wood where he grew up. So he was a master stone builder. He could do uh, so many things. So when I read his parables, I'm seeing a very, very frustrated business person who has lived in the world, who's shown up at job sites, and promises were made and not kept. Materials didn't show up on time. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, Workers didn't show up on time. So the, the one passage where he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, he's ticked because he's seen it. <laughs> and he's had people make promises to him that didn't follow through. So in our business, and I, and I tell people, if you want to set your business apart from any other business out there, keep your word. Do what you say you're going to do no matter what it takes. And that's part of our culture through our whole company. So when I got that call and I'm talking to the, the customer and, and at first they, they didn't tell me. At first, they said, hey, how fast can you make one of these? And I said, well, typical lead time is three to four weeks. But man, if I'm really pushing hard, we could probably do it in three to four days. Okay, great. And then, well, what would that cost? And I said, well, it's going to cost, it's going to have an expedite fee because we're going to have to do some rearranging. Okay, great. They place the order and then they tell me, 
well, we, we need it now. We can't wait three to four days. We need it in a day and a half. I'm like, whoa, 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 hold it. This is what I promised you. This is what we said we could do. And now you're asking for a miracle. So I, so I was very honest. I said, I don't know if that's possible. Let me go talk to my staff. So that's when we got everybody together and they all, and my, my young guys and older guys just said, we, we think we can do it in, in 28 hours. And so then I was able to call the customer back up and say, okay, we're going to try. Can't yeah. make any promises. For sure, it will be out in 48 hours, but we'll do it, do what we can. And, and so much of that is building that, that authentic, honest relationship with our customers. Keeping promises is often thought of as following through, um, sort of the after the after the fact, after the promise has been made, doing the thing. Yeah. But what you seem to be talking about as well is that we need to be careful about the kind of promises that we make. Yeah. yeah. And you 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 gave two things about three things about this that really stand out to me. Number one, you were empathetic to the the customer, mm-hmm. and I remember you you made a comment. When, quoted yourself when you talked to your guys, hey guys, we've been in this situation before. Imagine what they're like going through here. Mm-hmm. So that was part of the reason you wanted to even try to say yes. It yes. wasn't just the right. expediting fee and the profit right. you'd get. You, you yep. had plenty yep. of business. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But you were putting yourself in the yeah. shoes of the customer saying, man, if that was me, and I'd, the, and I'd this, be in a world of hurt. And this customer, we have a great relationship. Yeah. He is so appreciative of and his whole team, their whole team is so appreciative of everything we do. So again, it comes it comes down relationship again. But then secondly, you didn't just uh, empathize. Then you were careful to include your team in the commitment. Correct. I, I know many times I was frustrated about mm-hmm. the boss would promise stuff and then throw it off on the team that had nothing to do, no buy-in. Yeah. And so you brought them all together and said, what can we do? If, if, you know, best case scenario, where could we be yeah. on this? And it was their feedback that then informed your promise. And that's the third thing is that you were very careful in what you promised. I promise I will try. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's different than I promise I'll, I'll deliver, you yeah. know? Yeah. And I think yeah. that's that's a great process behind the scenes and had nothing to yeah. do with, of course, the effort that went into keeping the promise, but it was it was carefulness in what promises we make I think that's a tremendous life lesson right there. It's managing expectations. Mm. It really is. And 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 we've learned the hard way. I, I've had staff who had made promises to customers without checking in with the staff. And I've had to coach them and say, do not do that. <laughs> I mean, people want to be, they don't want you just come out and say, hey, we're going to do this. Um, get their feedback, get their buy-in. And then you get their best efforts. You know, everybody wants to be involved in making decisions and being responsible. Um, Dennis Bakke wrote a book years ago called Joy at Work. We all want to experience joy at work. We all want to be part of the decision making and the processes um, from from every person through the company. So that's that's part of our our uh, processes and how we do that to make to, to have that mentoring culture to include everybody in those decisions. So tell us about the Craftsman Code. Where did you come up with that, and how do you use that? My wife would say it's a God thing, and I would tend to agree because <laughs> <laughs> because I wrote it. Um, when I, when I wrote, when I came up with the course, you know, we were struggling like a lot of manufacturers. How do we get young people into our businesses? Because there's this aging demographic, the average age. I, I spoke at our, there's an actual American gear manufacturers association with all a bunch of gear, make gear heads get together from around the, literally around the world. And I was speaking to them one day and I said, what's the average age in your shops? And across the board, people were saying, you know, 50, 55, 57. Average age, one shop said 45. And I go, wow, that's pretty good. Um, and, our, and we were struggling with the same thing. So the, the challenge was how do we get young people in, going to the local high schools, exposing them to the opportunities within a mentoring culture, a um, lot of job shadowing, working on their character. And when I got working with these kids and, th- and I looked, talked to our local high school and they said, yeah, why not? Let's try it, which was a miracle in itself. Hmm. I found out later they're going to say yes to everything that I would throw at them because they want to be the school of yes. <laughs> so it didn't matter if my idea was good or not. But the, the bottom line, what, what the, the course entails is introducing the kids, working on their character is also helping them find their way in, in life by hooking them up to, with mentors. So the craftsman code became... Um, you know, kind of our mantra of how do I help these kids understand how important they are and who they are and giving them a, 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 what essentially is a biblical worldview. And I wanted to make it simple, 
and that they can memorize and, and really take to heart. Well, you start off, number one, I am not the center of the universe. Mm-hmm. Why, why did you have to feel like that was needed to be said, and why is it number one? Well, think about when we're all teenagers, you know? We all think we're the center of the universe. We think the world revolves around us, and if you're going to have an accurate worldview, you need to understand that you're not, that you're mm-hmm. part of a greater fraternity of practitioners and other people that came before you that, you know, we're, you know, as, as God's children, we've been around for generations, and, and too often in our in our culture, we've we've cut ourselves off from our older generations, right? And so I, I wanted that sense of appreciation that you got to know that where you've come from and who's come before you. And the Christian virtue that would go along with that is humility, correct? And pride is our natural default, yeah. and yeah. so humility is really running counter to that and understanding yeah. that. Maybe I have a lot to offer, but I need to learn first. And think about that in the workplace, <laughs> yeah. you know, especially in, in machine shop. If you're not teachable, if you can't work with others, if you're not respectful, um, it's not going to work because there's so much to learn in an apprentice, you know, as, as an apprentice in a mentoring environment. So the first thing we need to know with these kids is that you have to be teachable mm. and don't waltz in and, and think that you know everything and tell everybody what to do. And And by getting that... It's our number one quality in our in our shop. You ask anybody, and our number one character quality that we look for is humility, because then you can work with them, and and they're they're a sponge. So we want the kids to understand that if you want to be successful, number one, get, get some humility in you. And that really goes along with number two. I do not know everything, nor nearly as much as I think I do. <laughs> is there an overconfidence that you see sometimes on the first day of the job, or when a guy walks in and thinks he knows it all? Yeah, yeah, and and I think part of it is, you know, our our social media and the internet. We, it it breeds that that you're supposed to be cocky and overly confident. And there's so much information out there. You know, we grew up in a time without Google and so yeah. on, right? So now you can Google almost and you can YouTube almost anything you want. And and the point I make to our students in our shop is, you know, there's a different, big difference between information and knowledge. And then there's a big difference from knowledge to wisdom, right? And so I want to help these kids realize you can have facts, but you don't know how to use them. And then even if you know how to use them, you may not even know how to use them correctly. And that's where it takes a while to get to the wisdom part. Yeah. Most of the guys in the manufacturing plant that I worked with were missing part of a finger or, you know, had a bit of a limp, yep. you know, yep. and they learned these things the yeah. hard way. Yeah. Maybe it'd be better for me to learn it from them. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> My middle son is a, is a woodshop teacher. Uh-huh. He's missing part of his middle finger on one hand. Yeah. <laughs> he had to learn the hard way. Well, then everybody else would rather learn from him than learn the way he did. Oh, he can just hold up his hand like, oh, okay, so he means it. Yeah. <laughs> Don't stick your finger in the, in the joiner. <laughs> so number three, there is dignity and purpose in knowing my trade. Yeah. 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 What? How does dignity and purpose play into it for every level within an organization? Well, again, I'm talking a blue collar, but it's, it's everybody. Um, we have, have so disrespected the view of work and I'm very much in the theology of work. God is a worker. He made us to work. Jesus said, God is still at work and my father is still at work just as I am. And I'm trying to complete the, the work that my father is doing. And, and so when we get into, I mean, think about it, God worked for six days and, and there's so many different gifts he needed to give to his people to build civilization. And so when we, when we overlook all these skilled trades and jobs that are necessary for, for civilization to function, especially in the blue collar world, it's important for us to, to communicate the dignity of what we do and the purpose and the importance of it. Um, and, and when we start doing that, I just see, I just see people just, just get in, uh, get inspired. I was, I was speaking up to a, ch- at a church recently in Green Bay and, and one of the things I did, I, I said, you know, who's here called to full-time ministry? And I had about five people stand up and I said, mm-hmm. okay, great. It was a trick question. <laughs> Cause then I said, so do we have any plumbers in the house? People are looking at me like I'm crazy. Why are you asking me that? And one one older guy kind of slowly raised his hand. He said, sir, yeah. He's like in the fourth row. Stand up. You're, you're a plumber. And he goes, yeah. And he goes, stand up. Thank you. Thank you for your service. And then I kept asking the question, do we have any truck drivers? Do we have any health care workers? Do we have any people in law, in education? And on, on. I got every person in that congregation standing up. And at the end of it, I said, so you now here's the important question. How come you all didn't stand up 
at my first question because we are all called to full-time ministry. We are all called to full-time service, no matter what career path that may take you on. And afterwards, I was, I, it was one of the most, I think, powerful moments, teaching moments for me where I had, I had these electricians and plumbers and people coming up to me and say, this is the first time in my life that anybody has ever affirmed me in church that my job is important. Wow. So and yeah. that that's pretty powerful. Well, there was work in the Garden of Eden before yeah. there was sin, before the fall. Exactly, it, it got harder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> after that, exactly. and you know, your business in replacing yeah. parts that wear out, okay, yeah. uh, is a, a new kind of work. Yep, yep. So, how has it changed? By the way, before we go back to the code, how has manufacturing, especially in the gear business, yeah. changed over the years uh, that you've seen it? The technology that's come in and innovations. My generation is kind of the bridge between the old manual machines, mechanical, that you just stand there and chips are flying off and you're getting filthy and cut and so on and it's dirty and you have chips all over the floor. You go home smelling like a refinery, you know, because mm. of the cutting oil and so on. And, and it really was. Micro talks about jobs are, are perceived as dirty, dark, and dangerous manufacturing. It's not like that now. Now the technology is such that you got you could practically put our guys in lab coats because really? these these CNC machines are so clean. And I, I had recently had someone come through for a tour, and I think they remarked you know a dozen times, "I can't believe how clean this place is." And did you do it just for me? I said, "No, you're not that important." <laughs> I said, "But our guys take pride." Um, and keeping their areas clean and everything's enclosed. The machines are all the CNC equipment, very, had, very high tech. You had to be open to that. You had to invest in that purposefully yeah. and you had to innovate. And yeah. if you hadn't, you'd be like so many other shops that aren't around anymore. And there's a lot of shops that went went down because they want to embrace the technology. And that... And, and I talked to my older staff. I said, you know, we're the ones that had to learn the new technology. And now you're holding back the young guys for introducing even newer technology. Don't be that old guy that says, well, we've always done it this way. You know, embrace the young guys as, uh, you know, their, their lust for technology and learning and, and innovative ideas. So is the technology uh, at odds with or an enemy of the workforce? No. Is this something they should no. be afraid of that no. they're going to take our the robots are going to take our jobs? You know, I'm teaching at a at a Frito, like I mentioned, a Frito Lay plant in Beloit, and you know they have three hundred employees, and they put in all this technology for making chips and you know the Doritos and Cheetos and all of that. And I heard I was, there was a chip shortage, but I didn't think it was Doritos. It's it could be coming. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> it could be coming. <laughs> they use something like what, what did they tell me? They use eight hundred thousand pounds of potatoes a day. Wow, well, a day. But anyway, it's a lot of potatoes. They said, just imagine the Rolls Bowl, 100,000 people, everybody holding an eight pound bake of potato, potatoes every day. Um, but anyway, the, the operational uh, guy was telling me down there that they put in this incredible new line of technology of, of just this automation for, for bagging chips and so on. And it really concerned a lot of the staff because they had people, you know, you have to cut potatoes up in certain sizes for chips. They would have people manually standing there with knives, cutting the potatoes up that were too big. Mm. And then some of the other manual jobs of just taking the chips and putting them in boxes, you know, bag at a time and then stacking the boxes. So they introduced this man, this, this production line that was all automated and they were worried about, okay, well, are we going to lose all these jobs? And what Frito did at this plant, which is pretty stunning, nobody lost their job. They used all those people to retrain them and get better jobs and embrace the technology and manage the machines. Everybody got raises. Everybody now has uh, is at a higher skill level than it was before. And I see that in manufacturing uh, today um, and, and all, all the trades manufacturing. There are so many jobs available that um, we're, we're never going to run out of the need for people to manage those machines and to use the technology. And that leads to number four in the craftsman code. The world needs me. Oh, good setup. <laughs> that was good. Yeah, you did masterfully. <laughs> the world as we as we know it would not function without my trade, yeah. the, the code says. Yeah, yeah. And again, it goes about what you said about in the Garden of Eden. There's so many jobs to, that are needed in today's you know technological world. There's so many, there's a diversity of gifts that are just mind-numbing that, that we're, we're all needed, all hands on deck. But it's more than just understanding how the world works. It's understanding how my part of it 
yeah. fits into yeah. a larger purpose. That's what this podcast is all about. Yeah. It's about understanding how my role connects to a larger right. mission, right? right? And right. I have a feeling that Edgerton Gear Company is not just focused on the gears. It seems to me that you're articulating a vision beyond just yeah. the particular product that leaves your right. warehouse, right? Right. So how do you explain to that guy programming a CNC machine how what he's doing is bigger than just that? Well, it's like that old story that they, they often I often hear where there's three bricklayers, you know, helping build the Sistine Chapel, hmm. right? And they walked up to the first guy and said, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just laying bricks, right? They walk up to the second guy and he goes, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm just doing my job and helping, you know, doing what I need to do to earn a living. And they'd actually the third guy and he said, what are you doing? He goes, I'm building a cathedral, mm. right? It's really, so day to day on our job and in, in our company, I have to articulate our bigger purpose, right? And I think that's that's where a lot of, of places uh, struggle with their staff. They don't under, They don't communicate how important they are to their communities, you know, and sharing those stories of how we help, we help to plant get up and running in, in 48 hours so everybody could have a job that day. And we helped, when the COVID crisis hit, for instance, uh, one of our customers makes machines that make toilet paper. And if you remember, there's a toilet paper shortage. It wasn't that there was a shortage, it was that most of the manufacturing for toilet paper rolls, half of it were big rolls for restaurants and, and hotels, and the rest of the, ma the production was for small rolls. Well, when everything got shut down, it all went to small rolls and they couldn't keep up with their production lines. They couldn't switch them over that fast. Oh. So our, our customer was uh, headquartered in Italy. And if you also remember, Italy got hit the hardest. Yep. So our North Early America, on. our North American company called up and said, Hey, we can't get parts out of Italy anymore, at least for the time being, can you help? And so they just gave us a ton of orders to get the, the toilet paper manufacturing plants around the country up and running. So I share those stories to our staff and going, guys, if we don't do our job, you know, <laughs> world's out of toilet paper. <laughs> this could be a very bad situation. <laughs> I love that articulation. How, how often do you have to do that as a leader? I do it every day. Yeah. In personal one-on-one -on -one conversations, we're, we're always sharing stories. I get my staff that's manning the phones and talking to customers, share stories, share stories. And then once a week, we have a company meeting. And if, if there's more opportunities to share stories, because, you know, we all get bored. We all, we all lose sight of, you know, it's a mundane job. It's ups and downs. Work is never easy. Um, you have more hard days than good days. And so we constantly, in that sense of community to pick each other up, to remind each other, like, yeah, we're, we're part of a bigger purpose. You scrapped out parts, machine malfunction, material didn't show up. Let's keep moving, you know? And, and when you have that bigger perspective that we're part of something bigger than ourselves, it, it makes those low times a lot more endurable. Number five, pay is a reward for my efforts, but not my main motivation. Really? You can look at, there's been tons of research. Look at all the research that shows money is not at the top of everybody's list for job satisfaction. It's usually down five, six, seven. Now, if you're getting underpaid and you're not even getting work paid a living wage, that's another issue. But once you get to a point where, yeah, you can pay your bills, you can maybe buy a house, a car, et cetera, what people are looking for is that deeper sense of connectiveness, purpose, I'm respected, I'm doing something meaningful. Um, and for the tradesperson or the machinist or, or all of us, there's a tremendous sense of pride that, that we're doing something meaningful. I, one of our the young guys that was featured in the film this morning, he said, you know, Edgerton gear, I don't want to make something that's just good enough. That, that's, that's like a swear word to me. I don't do something just good enough. I want to make it the best possible. I want it to have, have us have higher standards than just good enough. Interesting. Yeah. I love the phrase in the description there. Uh, my reward is in the journey and making something of quality that is yeah. right and that benefits the world as opposed to doing it just so I can collect my paycheck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you see that in other companies that don't do as well. You know, they're just out for money, just get it through. You see that in staff um, that, that don't understand that. And, and part of it is just ignorance. But once they you introduce them to a, an idea that, you know, it, it really is in making something quality that benefits. That, that's the way God wired us, you know? And, and when we can tap into that in, in everybody, deep down, I believe everybody wants to, to make a difference and, and do something worthwhile. And when you talk about enhancing the quality of something, there's always another level that you can achieve. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Go back to business law. We talk in business law, contract law, about the perfect 
tender rule. Okay. Okay. And the perfect tender rule says that when you have a contract uh, that I'm supposed to deliver, that it has to be exactly match what what was uh, ordered. Okay. Mm-hmm. What the contract said. But I teach my students there's no such thing mm. as perfect. Nope. No part nope. right is perfect. Yep. So nope. we talk instead about specifications and tolerances. We do too. So I wondered yeah. if you yeah. would help yeah. explain yeah. the difference between perfect <laughs> in a natural product <laughs> or in a in a physical product versus being within the specifications, the, yeah. the tolerances that, that are yeah. that are laid out. My dad always taught me that every time so we work within thousandths of an inch, okay, not just fractions, but within thousands, three decimal places. My dad always taught me that every time you move move that decimal place, it caught it gets more expensive. So wow. if you're just working within hold hold tolerances, like hold numbers, that's one thing. When you get to the first, you know, first decimal, that's almost fractional. And as you get, and it takes <laughs> that much more work to get it, you know, more and more closer to perfect. You can never get perfect, but when you get closer and closer and higher, higher, tighter tolerances, it gets more and more expensive. So I've had to reel my guys in. They want to get perfect. Well. That specification, you know, let's say you're talking about the width of a gear, it may not ha- matter. It could, it could be off an eighth of an inch. Who cares? And that's what they call the tolerance. The tolerance. Yeah. But when you're talking about the meshing of the gears, then you're talking about thousands, if not ten thousands of an inch. That matters. Mm. So you have to really teach our staff. Some things really matter to get that tolerance. Other ones don't waste your time. And it's really finding that balance. But for the type A personalities, but no, it's all got to be perfect. Like, well, no, it doesn't. There's, yeah, it has yeah. to be within our specifications yeah, and yeah. tolerances. Yeah. Have you ever read about the satellites and when they make uh, spacecraft and, and those sorts of uh, yeah. manufacturing projects? The James Webb tele- Telescope is an example huh, no. of this. They, you should read about it. They, they, they took forever. It was way over budget and way over time. Okay. To get that thing launched and and out there, but now that it is, everybody oozes and eyes over the whole thing. Well, it replaced the Hubble telescope. Oh, it did. Okay. And Hubble, everybody knew was the greatest. Right. And late. Well, James Webb blows it out of the water. I mean, okay. it can go so much deeper and farther back in time. They they call hmm. it. But when Hubble was launched, the tolerances weren't right on the the main mirror. Oh, okay. And it was useless. And the, it, the the photos that came back were garbage after billions mm. were spent to launch and put it into place, right? And they had to launch and, and go in and they tried to fix it with software and they couldn't do it. And then they had to go in and actually do spacewalks to they repair did. the oh, thing, my goodness. right? Okay. Why? Because yeah. the, the tolerances weren't yeah. correctly calculated and, yeah. and implemented. Yeah. And it, it all comes back to someone in the trades knowing what they're doing yep. and being committed to not yeah. perfection necessarily, yep. Yep. but staying within those specifications. Yeah. I think yeah. there's something about our culture though that prioritizes that perception of perfection, even in the social media atmosphere where you get to highly specialize or you get to edit what you're doing so that you visually look correct. But on the back end, maybe you're not. But when it actually comes to something that matters, there is what's what's close enough to being perfect. Yeah. And th- there are actual lives at stake, maybe, yeah. um, as opposed to just looking or sounding correct. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You said here under one of your points, my head learns knowledge, but my hands test if it is true. That there's a reality that will be revealed in the performance, right? I mean, some of those specs yeah. are the composition of the metal yeah. And you know yeah. how it's going to yeah. perform over time and wear down. Yeah. Then your final point here is every person has unique gifts and talents, something to contribute, something to add, right? And that's both valuing ourselves and the uniquenesses that we think of ourselves as maybe uh, we have insecurities yeah. or quirks. Yeah. And yet also seeing the value in others as well. Well, that guest that, that was at the breakfast this morning, uh, he said he, he hires special needs employees. And one, and people were a little freaked out at first about, oh, you're going to hold it. This this guy could stick his hand in a blender or, or mixer. And I loved his points that now he has a number of, of special needs people working for him because he's able to tap into what they're good at and really find out where they fit. And when we work with our students that are often at-risk kids that the school doesn't know what to do with, we look at them as as opportunists that we see they have hidden gifts and talents that we just have to uncover them and, and figure that out. Well, you talked about mentoring as a major strategy to make sure no one falls through the cracks. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that also goes to the value piece, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That what, what does that look like when somebody falls through the cracks in a job environment or I guess in a community? Well, in our shop, it's someone that, you know, one example would be they're scrapping a lot of parts and they're frustrated. They're not engaged. They, they, you could tell they're struggling. And we had one situation where I had to ask my staff, what's going on with this guy? And they said, well, and they kind of made some excuses. And I said, hold it. Have we really spent the time training and giving them all the tools and the time they needed? Or did you just assume that they should know how to do things? And so we've learned the hard way that we have to be very, very intentional instead of just throwing someone under the bus and saying, yeah, they're not going to make it. And and this whole course has been a learning process for us over the last 10 years and, and taught us that most people will respond if you put them in that right mentoring environment, but it's not easy. One, one young man that we had desperately wanted to be a machinist, but he had no mechanical aptitude whatsoever. And we spent two years trying to help him. And finally, and we, and we had to be honest and say, okay, what's best for him? Where does he fit? Does he really fit here? And we moved him all over the shop. And bottom line, he, his passion was logistics in the National Guard. So he actually got a path back to the National Guard, um, and that's what he loves to do. Interesting. But but it's really finding and looking at every person that comes through our shop. How has God created them? What are their gifts and talents, and where do they fit? But do you consider that a success? Yes, Even absolutely. though he doesn't work for you? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I, I've got, you know, <laughs> in the last couple of years, one story in particular, a uh, young man came to work for us. That was a good friend of my son's. Uh, he spent eight years getting through engineering school. Struggled mightily. He's a hands-on, tacit learner. And he'd fall asleep in math classes and he struggled and his brain just went all over the place. One of the smartest people I've ever met. So we took him on as an intern and he needed structure. He needed discipline. Mm -hmm. He needed people that would help him, you know, learn in a a right way. And at the end of, uh, I think it was three years, he came to me and he goes, hey, um, I feel horrible, but I've been offered an, an interview with this engineering firm. And I said, hold it, Nate, that's awesome, because what, what is it? And long story short, um, he took the job with our coaching. Um, he's working on uh, parts for the space station. Well, there you go. There you go. And we we celebrate, because, and it's not that he's <laughs> sitting at the computer all day designing. They needed someone that could come in and set up a new line to manufacture and, and, and cut the pipe needed for the space station and correct tolerances and so on. You still see him as your guy? Oh, absolutely. So you got yeah. a guy working on the space the space station. That's got, pretty incredible. <laughs> I got another guy that's working on a nuclear sub. All right. Yeah, and I, I, I another kid who took over my buddy's, uh, a guy I went to school with over the family hardware store. We, we brought him up. He got to be a journeyman machinist, and he felt called to go back to the, that. So it's not just, when we look at people, it's not just how they fit here. Our bigger, our bigger purpose is where do they fit, period. You've given us a lot of leadership lessons as we've been talking today, and I appreciate that. We're here on a college campus, and we have a lot of young people that just want to be successful. They want to be used of God yeah. in whatever yeah. path that he puts in front of them. Do you have a kind of a go-to leadership lesson that you would give in terms of advice for someone trying to discern that uh-huh. next step in the path? <laughs> it's kind of simplistic, but it's work. Go find a job. And it doesn't need to necessarily mean the job that's in your, your major. Um, my, my life is, is an example of that. God, you know, I thought God wanted to be a machinist. Well, then he had me be a pastor. Then he had me, you know, be a plumber's assistant. Then I was a bus driver. I worked in a state park. I mean, it goes on and on. <laughs> I'm like, Lord, what are you doing? This yeah. is insane. Well, the last two jobs that I had before I came back to the shop where I was at, I was at Regent College Theological Graduate School. Everybody said I was supposed to be a pastor. Then God called us back to the family business. And that's Mm. where I did my master's is how does kingdom values impact a business and a family? And the last two jobs I had is one, I worked for a guy who was pouring cement. And I did that for about nine months, nine months. Most horrible person I've ever worked for in my life. I actually enjoyed the work. I, I, I do enjoy physical work, but he was so broken and messed up and so abusive. Last day on the job, he stranded me and his brother on the roof because we had to straighten out his jo- his his panels the day before. It was a metal roof. He got off, started off crooked. Oops. So we had to, we had to take him off and he showed up and he goes, what? And he's yelling and swearing at us. And he took all of his all the tools and left. And I looked at his brother and I said, Are, have we, were we just fired? And he goes, I, I think so. 
<laughs> wow, wow. And, and so that was one. And then the next job I had was at a state park cleaning bathrooms for the most part. And I did that while I was in, uh, while I was in graduate school. And that boss was completely the opposite. He was the most inspiring, understanding, caring person, but hard, expected a lot. Yeah. And I walked away from that and I went, okay, Lord, you just gave me an example of the best boss that I want to be and the worst boss. So I look at, I, I just encourage people to get a job and let God lead you and teach you because you're going to learn something from every job imaginable, even though it may not seem to have anything to do with your major or your perceived life purpose. You can learn from a good boss. You can also learn from a not-so-good boss. I think I learned more from the not-so-good boss. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, we just really appreciate this conversation. and There's just so much alignment to our philosophy of service and ministry and just getting in and, and getting your hands dirty in the work of relationships because we know that that's not that's yeah. not a clean job either so thank you for your time and investment here thank you so much for having me it's been, it's been fun it's been a real pleasure love the work that you guys are doing thank you for joining us today on mission is a production of maranatha baptist university subscribe to on mission on apple google spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts don't forget to leave a review as this will help other growing leaders find these conversations for information about our guests, previous episodes, and general information about On Mission or MBU, go to mbu.edu podcast. Join us again next week as we examine what keeps leaders on mission.